You're listening to The Extra Real with Jerry Brown and Colin Ryan for a look at the bigger picture of film. With films from around the world. Through the decades. From movies you know and love. To movies you need to discover. This week on the show, we're talking about two variations of the same thing. We're talking about Breathless by Goddard and the 1983 remake by Jim McBride. A lot of people would say, look, they're both good films, but like critical reception has wavered for both over the years. So we've come up with a scoring system. So it's best out of two marks for each of them. And we're looking at a couple of different categories. So we're looking at cast, script, soundtrack, visuals, critical reception pop culture references let's tear straight into it plot synopsis wise it basically follows the template of a guy with a girl and a gun um in both cases the story follows a petty thief who's killed a cop and wants to run away with his girl um, in the french version it's an american girl and in the american film it's a french girl yeah cast wise what are we talking about so the 1960 film What's that? What what are your what's your score on cast anyway? Well, out of two, I actually I actually gave this a one, and I know uh, okay. ev- like a lot of critics love Jean Paul Belmondo as Michel Foucault, and that Gene Seberg is as Patricia French, and she's kind of like very iconic kind of looking character, a kind of role. But um, okay, so with the nineteen sixty film, my feeling is that. There is so much experimentation going on and so much, you know, parts of it where Goddard's messing around with sound and ADR. Uh, there's all this, like, stuff that was, like, breaking the mold of the time. But yeah. as a viewing experience, it actually kind of takes away from it. Like, yeah. Like, I know that uh, in one of the, the final scenes, uh, he'd asked, uh, he'd asked uh, Gene Seberg to, like, basically, like, play it a certain way, play it really cool. And then she wanted to be really histrionic in the scene. But then after they recorded the scene, he'd, she decided, oh, well, actually was better when I had played it really cool. But because of that, they had to do it. They had ADR and everything. So if you watch the scene, it's, it's kind of, you get really kind of mixed up watching it, if you know what I mean? Because the, yeah. the dialogue and like the lipstick doesn't fully fit, maybe, you know? Yeah, because they post-sync the sound. Yeah, because of the handheld cameras, apparently. Yes, too loud. Too loud, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. Uh, technology messing with the performance. Yeah. So what else? What else? Um, with about the cast. So you you were saying. Uh, so you're giving it one. Yeah. What 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 what's your main reason for one anyway? What? Um, well, I just I just think at times it's it's it tries so like. Belmondo's performance is, is very interesting that he's so aloof and so cool about everything but it's almost like he's too aloof and not emotional enough and I know okay. that was what they were going for I know that's what they were trying to do but at the same time I just I find him so hard to like I find him so, like he's like Michel Picard is a prick basically like I don't know why yes. any, oh, anyone totally. would love him you know <laughs> like why anyone would be interested in him at all yeah Okay, so I gave the the 1960 film two because, well, I didn't get kind of tied up with thinking about the characters, but I was thinking more about the actual, the star personas that, that we're looking at and, and the actual actors, the quality and what they've kind of come with. So Seberg's coming off the back of St. John, which I thought was 
a bloody awful film. She did another film with Preminger, um, uh, Bonjour Tristesse, and neither like neither films really kind of caught a whole pile of fire for me. Anyway, I don't think she's particularly very good in this film, you know. But she's coming with some star wattage. We've got Belmondo, who like I'm up and down about Belmondo. You know, he's like he's kind of in the same league at times as Delon. You know, he's got he has played this kind of cheeky chappy type thing a couple of times he's appeared in swashbucklers like cartouche he's fun at doing the tongue-in-cheek stuff he's reliable stuff i mean he's been paired with delon in films like the boss in Barcelona, and um i um so from that point of view they're coming with some serious star wattage and then you've got the appearances of the likes of melville um jean pierre melville and you've got goddard himself and um even i i would argue that you know goddard's own um appearance is a bit indulgent i suppose it, it has an interesting use in that it's great to see the the director being an agent of something in the film uh dramatically and it's good to read into that from a meta thing but like so it's got that so what did you give the, the 1983 film cast wise i give that a one as well yeah and me too I would nearly have given that too if it was just Richard Gere on his own because I'm such a big like Richard Gere in the 80s it's for me anyway it's pretty untouchable yeah. American Gigolo and Officer and Gentleman films like that I I know he gets criticised a lot for certain tics he has as an actor and all that but I every time I watch him on screen especially in this film the guy is a pure star he is he's, he's a, an absolute star yeah and one of these films as well where kind of because as people know that he was he trained as like a ballet dancer or something like that. So he kind of brings that rhythm and that energy into this film. Like in this film, he's always moving. He's always like going from place to place. He's always doing something. And he's got a brilliant. He owns energy. this film. Yeah, he completely he does. owns this yeah. film. Yeah. Definitely. This is definitely one of the great Richard Gere performances. It's definitely a film that should be seen as almost a star making, even if it's not super successful in the same way as some of his other star making films, like An Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah, uh, yeah and like like yourself, I'm totally weak for American Gigolo. But then the rest of the cast isn't super high wattage. No. Uh, Valerie Kaprisky, you know, is coming off of basically doing a lot of French TV, hasn't done a whole pile since. Um, down through the cast you're looking at john p ryan has appeared in a few other bits and pieces um like uh i think he was in death wish 4 <laughs> he was in one of the batman things as a doing a voice delta force 2 um and then art matrano so the guy in the the junkyard yeah you might yeah. remember him from police academy yeah the as the <laughs> yeah 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 um but like you can't say a whole pile that's like you know i'm not watching the film just to see them and they're not what i would consider great character actors they're good actors but they're not ones that you know sometimes there are actors that you you're used to seeing pop up like metrano i'm just used to seeing him in police academy sequels you know yeah. um that's kind of my um and like th- there's no disrespect to him but he's just going nah not in the same league he ain't no melville no he ain't no goddard actually the melville scene is great as Pavelesco. Yeah. That is brilliant. Yeah. Just, that works. Because this, that works. This, this, I'm sure he's a novelist or whatever, this guy, Pavelesco. And he's. Yeah. He's so kind of arrogant and egotistical. But these these people are just hanging on his every word. These journalists. Like he's got the, he's yeah. got the you know, the answers to life or something. <laughs> yeah. 
So on cast, we're t- at the moment, we're 3-2 in favour of 1960. Yeah. Let's move on to the script. What did you score both films? Uh, I gave both films one because obviously reading in the story with this, it came from the, the story came from like something that Truffaut had read, right? Yeah. About about this kind of um, this this guy who'd been involved in something similar to the, the Michel Picard um, kind of story. Um, but he had like a story kind of going around for a few years and I think with Claude Chabral and then they gave it to Goddard but they didn't really have a full script and so Goddard was kind of rewriting parts of the script in the morning and filming it during the day and he used to feed the actors lines as well so it, it comes across very I don't know very jumbled together doesn't it at times yeah like I scored it the exact same as yourself one all because uh, basically I think both both things are in two different systems. They're doing kind of what they what they set out to do very, very well. Like Goddard is kind of he's got something where yeah, it's very much on the fly. He's doing it like that, and uh, I kind of got the vibe that a, a standard script. This is almost like Neo Gaspar Noé in that you could take a treatment and kind of work with it and then just kind of regurgitate it and tweak things as you go. Yeah, and. Um, you know, I you know if you if you're doing a script breakdown of this film, it probably doesn't work. Um, I think there's more heart in uh this this the screenplay for the nineteen eighty three film. It's solid. It's not exactly amazing, but it's a it's a good script. Um, it's great character study, and I think we get to know the characters really well. We get to know Gears character quite well, um, and so. Yeah, so we're looking at two all on that one. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, anything else to say on that? Uh, I think yeah, on on the script actually, in terms of the uh, the 1983 film, they definitely try and give the gear character, like the Jesse Lujak character, they try and give him a lot more compassion. Because, yeah, because in the scene after he shoots the cop, um, he try he try, he puts his jacket underneath his head, you know, he kind of checks checks with him first, where it's very much in the uh, in the 1960 version, but Mondo. You know, shoots the guy and, and pretty much does a runner, you know, straight away. Um, and has no remorse throughout the whole film. Yeah. So it gives him, he's utterly, he's an utter bastard, really. He really he? is. Yeah, he's so, so, so it's very hard. Like, and like in both cases, I've seen across different reviews and stuff that, particularly the negative reviews where they're saying, well, it's very hard to like these characters. It is. But you can make more of a case for it with the 1983 film. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And that pays off in the end, I felt anyway. Yeah. Um, there's a real emotional connection. And uh, it kind of felt like the best parts of things like Bonnie and Clyde and uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That's what I felt with the freeze frame, with the looking back and forth. It felt like Bonnie and Clyde. Same for um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So I felt like it hit the highs of those two highly acclaimed films. And I'm just like, why is why isn't the 1983 breathless um held in the same regard as endings it's a great ending oh it's an absolutely and amazing not, not many films have the balls in the 1980s to finish with a freeze frame not many films no. have the balls in any decade to finish with a freeze frame but that one does it and does it well and also the uh, fact that we'll come into a soundtrack now i guess but the fact that it ends with the kind of the jack nietzsche score over um richard gear trying to mime dance to Jerry Lee Lewis uh, Breathless and that kind of comes in and you've these two 
these two kind of like songs that are trying to playing over each other. Then yeah. he goes back out, keeps the Jack Ninja score, and then he looks down, sees the gun, and then there's only one way it's gonna go. He's gonna turn around and shoot, but I like that they just froze it on that. As he said, it's really yeah. powerful and it's more powerful than if he shot the two cops and got away or if he was shot straight away, you know? Absolutely. It works because as viewers, like we've all seen these scenes played out and it, it's kind of redundant, so the not knowing really helps, like yeah. So soundtrack. What are we thinking here? Um, I, I, so what did you say? I, I gave it a, a 1 for 1960 and a 2 for 1983. But Yeah, and I'm the same. So yeah, go on. I wonder if that's just a context thing or an age thing. I mean, um, I, I'm not to say that the soundtrack to 96 film is bad. I just think the music by Matthew Salai is, is quite good, actually. It's, it's quite jazzy and lots of piano kind of stuff. And it's got a lot of energy to it, a lot of pep yeah. to it. And it keeps it kind of moving along. You know, stops the film slowing down. One of my big problems with the 1960 film is is that kind of at like 20, is a 24 minute scene or whatever it is between Seaburg and Belmondo where they're just in her apartment and they're just talking yeah. and it gets a bit existential and deep or whatever, but it doesn't really go anywhere for me. It doesn't really go anywhere. I, I just want to take a hacksaw to it at times so when I'm watching it because it slows the film really, it really slows the film down for me. Yeah, and even though it's shorter, it feels longer at times. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, well, yeah, I did like the music, but it didn't, it didn't stand out for me the way it does in the nineteen eighty three film. Yeah, the only way it stood out for me at times is if sometimes it felt a little bit too intrusive. Yeah, uh, you're right. It does. It 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 works on the jazzy front, but at times then you're just going, oh, it's a bit too loud or something. It's just it's it's, it's it is intrusive here. The nineteen eighty three film. Well, where do you start, huh? <laughs> Where do you start? It's it's, it's like a Quentin, it's like a it's like a Quentin Tarantino soundtrack before Quentin Tarantino. It's neo Quentin Tarantino, it really isn't is, it? Yeah, uh, you've got like you know obviously you've got the Jerry Lee Lewis stuff, you've got yeah the soundtrack list, but you've got Luke Ray, you've got Elvis with Swiss Minds, you've got Pretenders on it, Sam Cook on it. I mean, it's just a brilliant kind of rock. Dexter the soundtrack. Midnight Runners. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Celtic Soul Brothers bit. It's just great. Yeah. And it's how they run into each other at times or break up or even to get, you know, Jack the Ripper, Link Ray back in yeah. twice. Yeah. You know, and it works. It's almost like in Chunking Express when you're listening to California Dreaming about six times. Yeah. It shouldn't work. Like my rule of three for that sort of stuff is <laughs> well exceeded. Yeah. But it works and it really works here as well. And it's just even and how that's married with the visuals and stuff like that uh, at times. And you're just going, well, this is building up to something really exciting. And um, there are sequences which are you're just going, well, this is some of the best stuff of the 80s. It really is. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely adore that scene at the start where where Gear is just driving from Las Vegas to L.A. He's playing the jet. He looks he looks in the because he's stolen this car and he looks at, he looks all like sets. And he sees certain artists are like, nope. Nope, Manalope, nope. And then he sees, like, he comes on Jerry Lewis banging. And it creates the character in that scene, you know? Because, obviously, like, in this film, like, his character, like, Jack Lujak is kind of a guy from the 50s, the way he dresses, the way he wears his hair. But he's in the 80s, and everyone else dresses like they're in the 80s, except for him, you know? It's got that kind of rockabilly thing going on, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, and it really works for it. And, like, and that seems to be driving the, the like, it seems like the, the the character's mindset is driving the soundtrack choices as well, which is great. And yeah, he's physically putting tapes in and stuff like yeah. that. So that's cool. I mean, soundtrack, just, it's amazing. So we're kind of scoring that. 
two four in the favor of or four two if you want to put yeah. it that the other way around to the nineteen eighty three film visuals. What are we talking about here? Well, so yeah, I suppose in the nineteen sixty film we're we're talking a lots of kind of almost kind of handheld documentary feel. Um, yeah, DP was uh, Rob Coulthard, who's you know he's 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 really like probably the most famous DP from the whole new wave time. New wave. Uh, yeah, films of him like you know like see Jules and Jim. Uh, one of my favorites of his he did was that Jack Demi film Lola. Yeah, and he's obviously done like stuff like Unfemic and Femme, but yeah, he's wasn't he in, in Ireland for the Rocky Rocky Road? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah, was it Rocky Road to Dublin or something like that? I'm thinking '68 or something like that. And I I also read somewhere that he was like because he was a photographer as well that in the in the night scenes or something like that he used this different type of film or something like that. so and he was and he didn't mind the whole handheld thing because that was you know people weren't really doing that but goddard wanted a shot that way and they had no permits to shoot outside or anything like that and um i think yeah obviously there are some scenes where the camera is really shaky and stuff like that but you've got to remember 1960 you know the cameras weren't as small and as dainty as they are now they were big probably heavy noisy things and there's, yeah. there's also the effect, isn't there, where he uh, he'd sit on the he'd sit on the wheelchair or something, and someone would push him along through these kind of tracking shots, which is nearly reminiscent to pictures you see in those how to make a film books. Now, really you know, is, for, yeah, 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 for amateur filmmakers and stuff. So, yeah, it kind of gives it a down and gritty thing. Whereas the nineteen eighty three film has some seriously, you know, impressive crane shots. And like even just the production design, the look of it, you know, fake red backgrounds as he's driving the car and yeah. stuff like that. You're just going, wow, like it's just the little eyegasms throughout. Um, and even and, the, even the cars themselves, like there's that, that pink MG. Yeah. Which is this beautiful thing. And his 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 driving style reminded me a lot of uh, you know, Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh yeah, and that yeah, early, yeah. early kind of scene where he's just driving, he's just driving this car like an absolute madman. He's in full control. The driving in, in this kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. <laughs> you could do, I think, you could do whole a whole episode on Richard Gere driving and Richard Gere dancing. Yes, in you different really films. Could. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, we have to do one on American Gigolo. Oh, just we, as an excuse. We to... definitely do. We definitely do. And like the DP for this, uh, Richard H. Klein, I don't really know what else he's done. I know he did like Howard the Duck. I think he did more TV after that. No, I'm not big Well, he'd done, he'd done uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. He even did Death Wish 2. So there's a Death Wish connection going on here. <laughs> he did uh, Fury, The Fury with uh, Brian De Palma. Okay. Mr. Majestic with uh, Richard Fleischer. He did the last of the, the first run of Planet of the Apes films, Battle for Planet of the Apes, which is kind of the idea of that series. He did Body Heat, which is a very sexy film. Yeah. And he did Who'll Stop the Rain, also known as Dog Soldiers with um, Nick Nolte. He's got some pretty cool stuff. It. He's one of these guys that probably kind of flies under the radar of like, you know, the top DPs of the time. My God, he's got a good output. Yeah. So what are we scoring there? We're going 4-2 again. In favor of the 1983. Yeah, there's some guy reading. Not too some, bad. Some, some people are spitting out their tea while reading Kaya the cinema. <laughs> I know, <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. They're like philistines. Yeah. Critical reception. This is where the Kaya the cinema guys might come back and get their revenge. Yeah. So you've scored a two-one. I've gone one-one. Yeah. Talk to me about it. Now this might be what I've just read or something, and what you've read. Um, but I feel like there's there's 
pretty much always glowing praise of this film. Um, obviously, the 1961. The 1961, yeah. I feel like, yeah. I think, um, you know, the from the AV Club loves it. Uh, I know it's one of Roger Ebert's favourite films. And I just, I think a lot of the the critics love it for the use of the jump cut, for what did the time, how it was, you know, almost ushered in independent filmmaking in a sense. Um, how it like helps kick off the new wave with with 400 blows and a rush of money more um so i always i've always felt i read stuff about it that it's like maybe now in in recent times people look back at it as a film and not as what it was at the time and probably look at it a bit more in a mixed way yeah and i think uh, uh, i've scored it one all and mainly because i think things just kind of evened out like yes there was some mixed reaction i think initially but like it's, I suppose with the 1960 film people have it became so influential it became so bound up with the whole new wave by virtue of being out in about 20 years prior to the other film it picked up a run of steam which I think maybe has slowed down I think there's I, f- I think an awful lot of film students feel the pressure to like the film yeah and there's nothing wrong with it I think it's a good film the Jim McBride film was derided pretty much when it came out it really was but I, I wonder... also feel like it's gathered its own kind of reappraisal in in recent years um i've seen mark kermode as a champion for it i've seen tarantino as a champion for it yeah. i mean tarantino should nearly get down on his hands and knees and 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 kiss its feet because it feels like the most tarantino-esque non-tarantino film and probably one of the more successful ones yeah you know when you think of the tarantino rip-offs yeah in the 90s so i i i you know i i feel like that the 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 critical reception for both has evened out a bit over the years and i think the i feel like the 1983 film one is going to continue to grow i don't feel that that relegates the importance of the 1960 film so i think really really important film and I think people are still going to go back to it. They'll probably go back to it more than the other film until things even out even more, if they ever do. Um, I would say, see, you know, yeah. No, I would whereas say I, I, the other film is going to be a footnote in film studies classes, whereas you're going to have to go to Breathless, the 1960 version of Buddha Soup. Yeah, of course. Um, but I think the 1983 film, it gets, it gets righted off the Nazis kind of like hacky piece or it's it's too kitsch and too whatever but people don't if you really read into jim mcbride he's he's a really interesting guy like he he comes pretty much from like wasn't it he he, one of his first films with david holzman's diary was pretty much one of the first mockumentaries about this guy who's obsessed with films and obsessed with filmmaking and just can't is trying to film his whole life which is pretty much modern society these days uh, you know, and things like that. And he did this kind of like post-apocalyptic film called Glen Aranda. And he studied, like he worked a bit with Jonas Mekas, who was obviously a very kind of experimental filmmaker in New York at the time. So it's not like he's coming like into big this. Big Easy. As, yeah, it's not like yeah. he's coming into this as some like kind of like pure hockey filmmaker who just makes these derivative genre pieces. And yeah. I, think, I think a lot of people look at Breathless like that. And it's like because of Abu Dhusuf, and maybe in a, in a sense it almost hurts it that it is it is in a sense remake you know yeah that's what we, we forgot forgot to mention like the it, when we're talking about the screenplay like it's got one of the writers of um paris texas kit carson, carson is involved yeah. in it yeah and uh so like there's there's a lot going on here that's really really interesting and it really captures 
a real vibe for um for LA at the time and stuff like that, or a vibe for maybe an LA that doesn't exist, but it yeah, really, I love really I, good I sense prefer this. Yeah, I prefer this type of films the where they show LA as it is. They show and it's beach. They show it's not all Hollywood. It's and glamour, you know. I love that. Yeah. Um. So we're scoring that three two. Yeah. In favor of the nineteen sixty film. Okay, let's move on to pop culture references. So this is our last section. Yeah. Um, what way have you gone? I've gone 2-1 to 1983 version. But I wonder, was I a bit harsh on that? In terms okay, of... well, let's talk it through. I've gone 2-1 as well. Yeah. Talk. Wh- wh- were you feeling a bit of an apologist now for yourself last night? Had your drink ah. taken? <laughs> I didn't actually, no. <laughs> um, I I just feel like because... There's probably a lot of stuff in the 1960s film that I could have missed in terms of like references because obviously um, this whole new wave movement came from uh, people like Goddard and Truffaut loving American films, loving American yeah. cinema. And obviously uh, is, isn't like uh, Vermondus Carty's kind of plays off Bogart, isn't he? Yeah. And he has that great yeah, scene yeah. where he goes into, into in, sees the cinema, sees Bogart and does that weird motion with his, his hands around his lips. I don't know what yeah, that's about. Yeah, I don't yeah. understand that. That happens throughout the whole film. Do you understand and, that? Um, off the top of my head, it's probably something to do with maybe Bogart's lip or something like that, or maybe it's a gesture. I can't remember a specific yeah. one with Bogart. And, um, yeah, so like you've got references to things like The Harder They Fall, the Bogart film, uh, references to 40 Guns, Sam Fuller film, when she's looking through the rolled up yes, yeah. uh, magazine. Um and then when they go to the cinema, this is a clincher for me because they go to the cinema in both films, right? I scored this 2-1 to the 1983 film, but they go to the cinema in both films. They go to see a Western in the 1960 film. You just hear it in the background. They obviously didn't have the budget to, to get a snippet. And um, when they come out of the cinema, you see that they've gone to see Westbound. And that's a one of the lesser Bud Bedeker, Randolph Scott Westerns. Right. Whereas in the nineteen sixty, uh, sorry, the nineteen eighty three film, they go to see uh, Gun Crazy, Crazy, Peggy Cummins, yeah. and uh, you know uh, they um, that kind of has ties more in line with the kind of Doom Lovers stuff yeah. that we see at the end of this film. So I'm going to give it a little bit more kudos for that. When we're just talking about the film side of things, yeah, the nineteen eighty three film feels like a richer text in that you've got loads of those more musical references you've got uh the silver surfer stuff going yeah, on silver surfer stuff so is great it's great it's really good I and it, it. it gets more and more tied into the story and stuff yeah. um and it's pent up with the character so are, do you want to reappraise do you want to reappraise your scoring there now do you, or do you want to stick no, it to I'll, I'll stick with my two one I'll do you want to give it one. you can get no no i mean they've got, got they've got you're gonna give it a two no i'm gonna i'm gonna say two one i mean they've got the uh the errol yeah. flynn households Errol uh, Flynn House, yeah. yeah, that's like completely in ruins now. In in 1983, they don't need to do that, but they do. Um, as I said, the Silver Surfer stuff is brilliant. I love how it, 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 you know, because the idea of Silver Surfer was that he, he was, his planet was taken by this guy called Galactus, and Galactus said, "I won't take your planet, but if you go and take, I find all these other plans for me and take them, then I'll let your planet live." So Silver Surfer goes to do that. Then he gets to Earth, and they say to him, "You know what?" Uh, and he, he meets Fantastic Four and they're like, oh, we, we I like it here. What, what am I doing this for? And Galactus says, okay, 
you don't have to work for me anymore, but you can never go back to your planet again and you can never see see your wife or whatever your loved one. And I love how it kind of like it builds into the the gear character because obviously he's he's waiting for this money to come in and get away, but it's like he knows he's gonna have to give up something of himself and he's already in trouble anyway. And it's just yeah. amazing. It's and yeah, I really I really love that kind of stuff because sometimes it can be put into films just as like, oh let's make this character like a bit geeky or this character a certain way but it's just like gears character isn't that at all he's still kind of like you know a bit of a bit of an idiot basically but he just loves these comics you know <laughs> <laughs> he is a bit of an idiot he is he is yeah he is. um yeah so yeah what are we looking so at it's now? ahead of its time yeah definitely yeah so so let's let's tot up the scores this is i suppose the the, the crucial thing about doing it this way is this is gut feelings to the fore yeah we've and um, we've looked at some of the key aspects for liking a film the 1960 film we scored at 13 so this is our combined scores yeah. so it gets 13 the 1983 film 18 yeah does that feel right i think that does feel right to me i like at the end of the day you can you can take into account studying films or watching as many films as possible but you have to take into account which did you enjoy more and which did you get yeah. more out of uh yeah and I just get a lot more of the, the 1983 film. Now, this could be from growing up in terms of, like, just growing up true filmmakers like like Tarantino and people like that in the 90s. Um, these kind of visual references they use that are just, you see them in the 1983 film more than you do in the 1960s one. Um, but it's kind of, kind of more, yeah, it's, I don't know, I just, I just love it. I love the 1983 film. I would definitely go and watch again the 1960s one. I feel at times like, am I, would I, this would have been more useful when maybe I was in my early 20s and learning about how to make films. Yeah, and, I, I, and to write about films, and I think it's essential to have seen it. Um, I don't think I'd watched it in about 10 or 12 years. Yeah, me neither. Uh, whereas I think I've, I'd watched the 1983 Breathless maybe in the last year, or maybe three or four years before that. I would definitely, like yourself, I think I'd go back and I'd revisit the 1983 one for fun. And anyway, where do you have lines like, you know, in a script, like where where that guy, that lieutenant says to, uh, says to uh, Valerie Kapinski says, don't F-U-C-K with the LAPD. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for listening. You can contact the show by emailing to extrareal at gmail.com Search for the Extra Real Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can listen to the show on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcast from.